This morning's reading comes from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Gracious God, merciful Father, we pray now, Lord, that you would focus our attention upon your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord God, you would uh, enable us to rightly understand it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives our hearts, to our minds. Father, we pray that uh, through your word, you would uh, chip away at our old selves, that you would enable us to mortify our sin, that you would make us more like Christ. And in the end, we pray that we would be encouraged by your word, as uh, these verses were intended by the Apostle Paul to be words of encouragement So, Father, we pray that we would find the same comfort and encouragement uh, in these words that were penned 2,000 years ago. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, one of the uh, uh, greatest books, one of the most well-known books that has ever been written is the book Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, written by John Bunyan. Many of you are familiar with that. Some of you may not be, so I'll give you just a little bit of background. John Bunyan was a 17th century uh, Puritan who uh, lived uh, in England and was imprisoned uh, for, his, for his faith for a, a great many years, uh, particularly um, only Anglican ministers during that time were um, allowed to, uh, to minister, to preach, Uh, the Word of God uh, publicly, and so you had to be licensed by the Anglican Church. Uh, So obviously Christianity not banned or outlawed, but John Bunyan himself uh, is what we would describe today a Reformed Baptist. He uh, he held to Baptistic views, he uh, held to the sovereignty of God, and uh, was not uh, going to try to be, he knew that he couldn't get licensed in the Anglican Church, he disagreed with um, their, their views, particularly on infant baptism. So he continued to preach at, uh, at house churches, uh, churches that met in barns or whatever the case may be, and he was threatened on numerous occasions that he would be jailed unless he ceased to do so, and he would not cease preaching the Word of God, and so he was jailed. And he had a wife and several children, small children, who struggled for the many years. I think he spent upwards of 10 years uh, in jail in England. But while imprisoned in England, he wrote this book. It's an allegory called 
The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've not read it, I highly encourage you to read it. It is one of the few books in literary history that since it was written in the year 1678 has never been out of print. It has never been out of print. It continues to be a, uh, um, a, a best-selling book uh, every year and has been translated into numerous languages. But it is an allegory about the Christian life is really what the story tells. It's a story of the Christian life. It's a story that every Christian goes through. Um, as you read it, you can, uh, if you're a believer, you can, you can resonate with many of the, uh, the obstacles that he goes through. But it follows a man by the name of Christian who is making his way from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And it is an, it is an epic adventure, covers a large span of time, covers over a large uh, area as well, and he goes through all kinds of uh, difficulties and obstacles, the highs and lows of the Christian life. And he meets various people along the way. They all represent uh, different individuals that we might meet in the Christian life. And uh, along the way, or at least at the beginning of his journey, he, is, uh, he has this giant burden that is on, its, on his back. And of course, the story never specifically tells you what that is, but you figure out soon enough that it is the weight of his sin, the guilt of his sin is this burden on his back, and it, and it keeps growing day after day, so long as he continues to reflect upon the Word of God, to reflect upon his own, um, his own sin and transgressions, this burden on his back gets heavier and heavier as he begins the journey. He realizes that the only one that can remove this burden from his back is the king of the celestial city. But early on in his adventure, he comes across a man by the name of uh, Pliable. And uh, as you can imagine what this person is like, right? No backbone, no conviction. He kind of goes with the wind. Uh, whatever, whatever the popular movement is of the time, that's the way that he's going to go. And so he comes across a man named Pliable, and he shares the story with him of this great news that he has heard of the celestial city where there is no suffering, no dying, only bliss. And Pliable says, you know what? It sounds great. I'm going with you. And so off they are on their adventure. Well, very shortly into this adventure, they fall into the slough of despond. And, uh, and they can't get out of it. They're struggling, this muddy mire. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, what this uh, slough uh, represents, it is when we go through difficult times in life, trials, tribulations, we feel like we cannot get out of them. While they are in the sloth of despond, Pliable says this, quote, is this the happiness you have told me of uh, this while? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life. You shall possess the brave country alone for me. In other words, I'm not going with you. If I get out of this, you're on your own because this is crazy. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the slough, which was next to his own house. So away he went and Christian saw him no more. Of course, if you read the story, you know how it goes. Christian continues to struggle in the slough of despond. He can't get out. The more he flounders, the more he sinks. And so he begins to cry for help. And of course, 
a man shows up to help him by the name of Help, of course. And Help is there to help him. He says, you cried for help, so here I am to help you out of this slough of despond. He asked him how he got there, and he said, well, we weren't paying attention, and we simply fell in. There's a key there. They weren't paying attention, and they simply fell in. But then help says to him, but why did you not look for the steps? All the while, there were steps nearby that Christian did not notice. Instead, he floundered, and he struggled, and he sank in the slough of despond. And so help reaches out and, of course, pulls him out of the mire. But this is one of the points that Paul is getting at in our text. It is not by any means the only point. There are several here. But this is a point that Paul is getting at in this text that he wants to communicate to the church in Corinth. Recall that in verses 1 through 11, Paul used numerous Old Testament examples about how Israel experienced amazing things from God. They, they witnessed and experienced, you know, all of the many plagues, the deliverance out of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, water from a rock, and yet many of them succumbed to various sins. Idolatry, which according to Ephesians is covetedness. They succumbed to sexual immorality. They succumbed to the sin of grumbling, of murmuring against God. And so Paul says to them twice in our text, in verses 6 and verse 11, that these things took place as examples for us to learn from, that we might not desire evil as they did. He says again in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. These things are all written there that we might learn from them. Learn the lessons, but not just the lessons, but also be encouraged as well. And so then Paul says in verse 12, therefore. In other words, everything that he has just said, particularly from verse 1 down to verse 11, here's what he's getting at, right? Because when you see the word therefore in the text, you've heard it said before, you want to see what it's there for, right? It's referring back to what has just been said. Paul gives all of these examples from the Old Testament, the people of Israel, all that they went through, and yet they fell into sin to such a great extent that many of them were driven into the wilderness by God and never saw the promised land. And so now Paul says in verse 12, therefore, in light of all that I have said, in light of these examples that were written down for us, for our instruction, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So Paul begins with issuing a strong word of warning in verse 12. But then he's also going to give them two words of encouragement, which we will look at in verse 13. But what Paul is saying in verse 12 is simply this. If you think that you are good to go, 
as a Christian, as the people of God. You think you're good to go. You think you are secure. Be careful lest you end up like many of the Israelites because they thought they were good to go. They thought they were secure. The Israelites were presumptuous. In the end, that was their great sin. They were presumptuous. They thought that simply because they were the physical descendants of Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham and to his descendants. We are the descendants of Abraham. Because they were the descendants of Abraham, because they had passed through the Red Sea, because they had witnessed the glorious deliverance of God, of the Israelites, out of Egyptian slavery, because God had done so much for them, they became lazy in their sanctification. Like Christian and pliable, they did not pay attention. So then the problem in the end was that they did not guard their hearts. They did not guard their hearts. They were not even careful to keep God's commandments. For example, the sin of sexual immorality they committed with the women of Moab toward the end of the book of Numbers. The law has already been given to them. They've been given the book of, well, Genesis and then Exodus and then Leviticus. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They are at the end of their 40-year wilderness wandering, and yet they engage in sexual immorality with the women of Moab. What were they thinking? They became careless, and they did not guard their hearts. They did not pay attention to what God had commanded. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, be careful not to have too much confidence in your spiritual maturity because we are all susceptible to going down the wrong path. That's the whole point of learning from Israel. Look at all that they witnessed and yet they still went down the wrong path. Paul says, don't become overly confident in your spiritual maturity because we are all susceptible to temptation and then coming under the discipline of God. Paul drives this home in many other places one of which we looked at last week, but I'll read it to you again. Romans chapter 11, verse 20 and 21, referring to ethnic Jews, Paul says this, they, referring to ethnic Jews, they were broken off because of their unbelief. They were broken off. Ethnic Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, were separated from the covenant community of God. But you... Stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, that is, ethnic Jews, neither will he spare you. In other words, Paul's warning, even to the church in Rome, is don't become presumptuous. I've been baptized. I grew up in a Christian home. 
I can quote the entire book of John verse by verse from beginning to end. I've read every systematic theology that is out there. I'm a member of a biblical church. I minister within the biblical church. Paul warns his readers on numerous occasions, do not become presumptuous. That simply because you've checked off the right boxes, you've gone through the right experiences, in the end, we need to examine our hearts and we need to keep close guard on our hearts. Even Jesus will say this to the disciples. At the end of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying. He encourages his disciples to pray while he is praying. And in Matthew chapter 26, he comes back to them, and they're all asleep. And he says to them in verse 40 and 41, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says to the disciples, watch and pray that you may not be tempted, that you may not fall into temptation, that you might not give in to the temptations of the devil. The Bible is filled with Old Testament and New Testament warnings telling us to be vigilant as Christians because, as we're told in 1 Peter 5.8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He really is. He is always looking for an opportunity to pounce, to grab a hold of your leg and to drag you into sin. And he will never give up. He will never rest. We are engaged in a spiritual warfare, but it is not the kind of spiritual warfare. This is not the kind of war that is on the equivalent of World War I or World War II, where there was a, a definite front line. The enemy was over there, and behind me were all of the allies. And if you were moved off the front line, you could be taken 25 miles to the rear and you could let down your gear and you could take your helmet off and you could rest because you're not on the front line. You're safe from, you're a safe distance from the front line. You don't have to worry about the enemy with where you are. In World War II, they would often take them back to England to rest before sending them back to Europe to continue fighting in the war. No, my friends, the kind of spiritual war that we are engaged in is more of a Vietnam-style kind of war. We are surrounded by the enemy. There is no front line. They are always around us. They are always taking shots. They are always taking opportunities. We cannot ever let our guard down. And yes, it is exhausting. But the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We must keep a close watch on our heart. I read a quote recently that someone else posted online, and I thought it just uh, 
fit very well with this message that I thought I would read it to you. It's a quote by D.A. Carson. Many of you are familiar with him, well-known, um, trustworthy theologian, professor for many years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, wrote numerous commentaries, and uh, someone I would highly recommend. D.A. Carson said this, quote, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. Prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Carson is right. That is what happens when we don't keep a close watch on our heart. It's what happened to the nation of Israel. They drifted away from God to the point that by the 6th century B.C., God finally destroys the southern kingdom of Israel. Yet so often we do make the mistake of letting our guard down. Not just in terms of Bible Christian activities, not just in terms of prayer or Bible reading, but more importantly, as I've already stated, we so often let our guard down in terms of examining our hearts. In other words, why do we do the things that we do? When we minister to other people, when we minister to our neighbors, when we minister to our family members, when we minister within the church, when we do the good things that we do, when we engage in prayer, when we engage in Bible reading, when we go to church, when we go to Bible study, what are the true motivating factors of our heart? Because the frightening thing is, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, hell is going to be filled with people who were baptized and ministered within the church for decades. Remember that the Jews thought that they were serving God by crucifying a man who blasphemed. Jesus, a mere man, at least as far as they could tell, claimed to be God. Anybody knew that if you read the Old Testament, Jesus, God is not a man. This is some false teaching that comes straight out of Greek mythology. Here is a mere man born from parents that we know in Bethlehem from a questionable birth at that who claims to be God. The Jews believed they were doing what is right and pleasing to God by crucifying Christ. 
I'm convinced that Paul believed that he was serving God as a devout Pharisee when he was arresting Christians and putting some of them to death. He knew the law. He read the Old Testament. He knew Old Testament theology. This is not how the Messiah comes. The Messiah is a great deliverer. He's a military leader. Paul was doing what was right in the eyes of God, or so he thought. This is Paul's strong warning that he gives to the church in Corinth. He speaks from experience. Don't become presumptuous. Take heed to yourself, guard your heart, and learn from Israel's example. He then reminds him in verse 13 of our text. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He reminds them that they are not alone in their struggle against temptation. Paul wants them to understand that whatever temptations that has befallen the church in Corinth is not unique to them. The nation of Israel struggled with all of these same things and more. This is not new to you. I think it's an important lesson for them, and it's an important lesson for all of us. Because as Christians, when we struggle with temptations, when we struggle with sin, it can, be often, it can, it can often be easy for us to think that we're all alone. No one knows what I'm going through. No one has ever experienced what I'm going No one can understand, which is oftentimes one of the reasons we fall into the slough of despond and we stay there far longer than we should. We don't want to ask for help. We don't want to confess our sins because nobody understands. Nobody knows what I'm going through. No one has been through this before. But my friends, Paul is right. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But, as Paul says in Romans 15.4 again, Romans 15.4, Paul says, For whatever was written in former days, that is in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, for our instruction. God was doing all of that for us. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. In other words, the encouragement from the Old Testament is not to have faith like Abraham. It's not to be strong like Moses. It's not to be brave like Joshua, but rather that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his people. He ever leads and guides his people down the right path. Psalm 23, right? That's why that's such a popular psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That verse, he leads me in paths of righteousness, can actually be translated from the Hebrew. He leads me down the right paths for his name's sake. So no matter what you're going through in life, no matter what trials, temptations, struggles, or obstacles, if you are a part of the people of God, if you have faith, genuine saving faith in Christ, know that the good shepherd never abandons his people. He is always leading you in the right direction for his name's sake, for his glory. In fact, that is the only reason God does anything, for his own glory. Moses and David understood that. They understood it so well, they used it against God. When God was going to destroy the nation of Israel, Moses stands in the gap and says, don't do this because what will the nation say about you? He didn't argue they don't deserve to be squashed because he knew they did. He said, how is this going to reflect upon your glory, God, if you destroy them in the wilderness? David, many of his prayers, he will pray, for your name's sake, deliver me. Not for my sake, not for the sake of the people, but for your name's sake, deliver me. The good shepherd is always leading in the right direction. And thus, Scripture, according to Paul, the Old Testament, all of that was written down that we might have endurance so that we might have hope. Reminds me again of the story of Pilgrim's Progress. There's a, there's a scene in which Christian is given a vision of an old man in a cage, shaking the cage, yelling over and over, no hope, no hope. Of course, he can't figure out what that means until later... He finds himself in a cage in the, the castle of despair where the giants there don't kill anybody. They just give you all of the tools that you need to kill yourself because they hope that you will despair enough that you'll take your own life. The irony of that story is that Christian is locked in that cage with a, a, a fellow traveler by the name of Hopeful. He's there with hope, and yet he is losing hope. I think the point of that part in the story is that it's always there for you. All of the Old Testament stories were designed to give us hope that God is ever faithful to his people. God is ever faithful to his promises. God will not abandon us. And I know I just made reference to the fact that God destroyed the nation of Israel in the 6th century B.C., but understand it is because Israel had abandoned God centuries earlier. God was patient with them for centuries before he finally brings the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom of Israel. So first, Paul 
gives a strong word of warning to the church in Corinth in verse 12. Be vigilant. Do not be presumptuous. And then he gives them two words of encouragement. The first is in the, uh, the first part of verse 13, which we just read, which is, you're not alone in this. Okay? Read your Old Testament. Many, many people have gone through what you're going through, and worse. Yet God is faithful, and God is always leading them. The second word of encouragement he gives them is in the second half of verse 13, which begins with what I was just talking about. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. So on the one hand, he says, be vigilant, be vigilant, guard your heart, don't be presumptuous. But then on the other hand, he says, but God is faithful. God is faithful. In other words, God does not expect you to do this alone. What Paul tells the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of his return. If you're a believer, if God has redeemed you, if God has regenerated you, listen, God will complete what he started. Because God's plans are never frustrated. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul writes this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses uh, 23 and 24. Paul says this in a prayer, his closing prayer. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So that's his prayer for the church in Thessalonica. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. God will complete what he started in you. This is what Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand in verses 12 and 13. On the one hand, they must be vigilant in guarding their hearts in examining themselves, examining their motives, they must not be presumptuous as Christians. We must be vigilant. We must not be presumptuous as Christians. But yet, on the other hand, God is faithful. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted, he says, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, the steps that you may be able to endure it. But what does he mean exactly by that? He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. This is often a misunderstood verse. God knows your limitations. He knows your frame. He knows your spirit. He knows the strength of your faith better than you do. And so he's never going to allow a temptation to come into your life that is more than what you personally are able to handle. So what does Paul mean? Well, part of the answer is found in 
the second half of that verse. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, we always have the choice to obey or disobey. We always have that choice. To do what is right or to not do what is right. This is even true of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. All of these examples, Paul does not want us to understand that they were victims. They had a choice. They could have chosen to do what is right, what is pleasing to obey God. They chose not to. This is even true of Adam and Eve. They had a choice. Listen to the serpent, not listen to the serpent. Walk away. Don't talk to them. They chose to stand there and to engage with the enemy. Cain had a choice. He didn't have to kill Abel. He could have done something different. King Saul had a choice. He could have chosen to listen to Samuel. But instead, he chose to do things his own way. And the list goes on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum, right? David and Bathsheba. David had a choice. He wasn't a victim. It doesn't matter where she was bathing. He could have turned around. He could have went back in the house. David had a choice. Paul wants them to understand it, that they are not victims. Remember, Paul believes that he is writing to believers, right? Isn't that what he says at the very beginning of this book? How does he start this book? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He believes he is writing to believers who are not totally depraved. Believers have a free will. Unbelievers don't. They're bound by their sin. Their sin prevents them from doing that which is pleasing to God. But believers, Romans chapter 6, have been freed from the bondage of sin. We have, as Christians, the ability to choose for or against God's will. This is what he means when he says, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, because it's not possible. If you're a believer, you always possess the ability to say no to sin. You have the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. This is part of where we get the doctrine of eternal security. God's people can never be tempted beyond the point where they're going to fall into eternal destruction because you have the Holy Spirit who indwells you and strengthens you. And with every temptation, there are always two choices. God always will provide a way of escape. There's always a right choice and a wrong choice. And here's why Paul says that you may be able to endure it. 
that you may be able to endure it. You may say to yourselves, yes, but I know Christians who succumb to temptations and made shipwreck of their faith and never came back. But if you understand your theology regarding regeneration, what it means to be saved, eternal security, what God has done for people, then you understand that those individuals were never truly saved in the first place. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, that is, unbelievers, or people who claim to be Christians, but then departed from the Christian faith, departed from the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us, he says. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out of us, listen, they went out from us that it might become plain that they are not of us. You hear what John is saying? They departed from the church because they were never a part of the church in the first place. They simply claimed to be. They were playing along for a while, maybe even a long while. But the fact that they departed from the church, that they departed from the Christian faith and never returned, John says, is proof that they were never truly a part of the church in the first place. And the fact that they departed was to make it plain to the rest of us that they were never truly saved. Thus, Paul has in mind believers when he writes this text. For the believer, there is no temptation beyond your ability to choose what is right and pleasing to God. And the way of escape, the steps, as it were, are found right here. They're found right here. Whatever struggle you have in life, the answers you're looking for are found in God's Word. Don't slosh around in the slough of despond when the steps are right next to you. Not only are the steps right next to you, but help, the helper, is always available, and he is always nearby. As the Bible tells us in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, the Holy Spirit is God, which means Psalm 23 is also about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always leads us down the right path. He never steers us wrong. The problem that we get into, and you'll see that in the book. I don't know why it jumped into my head recently, but it fit with this text. You should read the book. But the problem that Christian gets into is he keeps going off the path, trying to find a shortcut, a better way only to make a mess of his life. And then helper or evangelist comes along and says, why can't you stay on the path? I don't know. (laughs) Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Thus, like Christian in John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, in the sloth of despond, look for the steps that God provides, which are right in front of you. That's why we read it 
why we study it. That's why we walk through it on Sunday mornings, verse by verse. For the believer, even when we cannot find the steps, as I've already said, the Holy Spirit is always there ready to pull you out if you'll simply cry out to him for help. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that on this, uh, this uh, pilgrimage that we are all on, on our way to the celestial city, Father, we pray that you would enable us to stay on the path, that you would enable us, help us to follow the Holy Spirit who is always leading us on the right path to the celestial city. And when we find ourselves in those moments of being in the slough of despond or in the castle of despair, Lord, we pray that we would look for the way of escape that we know you've provided for us in your word. We pray that we would take comfort in knowing that as children of God, we can never be tempted beyond our ability. Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we always have the ability to resist sin and temptation. So we pray that you would help us to remember this so important truth in the Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name.